Good morning again. It's good to be with you. We are in week 9 of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, so we're calling this Origins. We have been situating ourselves in this origin story that we've been given, which is Israel's origin story, so that we know how to live. We're learning about who we are and who God is based on how the story begins, right? Um, And I want to make a caveat right at the front. We're not doing this so that we have all the answers. Like there's there's this um, pressure that I feel to sort of like um, maybe confront like our like whenever we look at Genesis like we're we we sort of want this clarity this um, this certainty about what we're reading and we're told that we can have it like that's we've been taught Genesis from this perspective that we can kind of have this level of certainty over this document and know exactly what God was trying to say through it. And I'm not trying to replace one certainty with another. I'm trying to ask better questions. And some of those questions will lead us to better answers, and some of those questions will lead us to scratch our heads, and that's okay too. Right? So the goal throughout this series isn't certainty, it's faithfulness, it's trust. It's learning how to have this uh, deeper, greater trust that doesn't just rely on the answers that we receive from God, but relies on the presence of God who reveals Himself through this very strange, and we're going to see very strange today, uh, document called Genesis. Uh, we're diving deeper on Wednesday nights at 8 o'clock because we can't get to everything in this series on Sunday mornings, so come and join us. Yeah, I think that's it. Today, we get to everyone's favorite genre of literature. And by that, I mean genealogy. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Who's ready for the first genealogy in the Bible? This one does pack a punch, and we'll see why. So, uh, so don't check out yet. Stay with me. Genesis 5, verse 1. Uh, I'm going to skip a few things along the way, but I'll tell you when it happens. Okay? Genesis 5, verse 1. Verses are up here too. This is the written account of Adam's family line when God created mankind. That is the word Adam. Do you remember? He made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And He named them mankind, Adam, when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. So we see this creativity carrying forward. And he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years. And then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. After he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived a total of 912 years and then he died. So Enosh, after Enosh comes Canaan, after him comes Mahalalel, after him comes Jared or Yared, and after him comes Enoch. This is where things get interesting. Verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total 
of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God and he was no more because God took him away. After Enoch, obviously comes Methuselah and then Lamech. When Lamech, this is verse 28, lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived a total of 777 years and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We did it. We made it through our first genealogy. Let me tell you a similar story. And you're not going to believe me that it's similar. Okay? You're going to scratch your heads. It's okay. Bear with me. Similar story. It's not going to look like it's related in any way to Genesis 5, but here we go. Ten days ago, in the city of Henisheks, I don't know how to say that, a Ukrainian mother approached a Russian soldier. The soldier held a semi-automatic weapon in his hands and was surrounded by his comrades. The woman, standing alone, held nothing but a handful of sunflower seeds. Which just happens to be the national flower of Ukraine. A conversation ensues between the two. The woman, what are you doing here? Soldier, we have exercises. Go away. Woman, what kind of exercises? Soldier, our discussion will lead to nothing. Woman, you are occupants. You are fascists. What are you doing on our land with all these guns? Soldier, don't escalate this situation. Woman, what situation? Here, Put these seeds in your pocket so at least sunflowers will grow here when you die on our land. You are occupiers. You are cursed. Soldier, let's not escalate the situation. Go away. Woman, how could it be further escalated? You have come here uninvited. This interaction uh, has become symbolic of Ukrainian bravery and patriotism, right? Have you heard this? Have you seen it? But I'm highlighting it here for another reason. Because her display is an act of prophetic witness meant to scandalize and subvert the demonic power that Russia is using to oppress and kill their neighbors. It's calling attention to it. It's, it's subverting it. It's undoing it. It's calling it what it is. Here, you have someone with absolutely no earthly power, nothing but seeds in their pocket, confronting someone with incredible earthly power in order to show them that the power they hold is fleeting at best and poisonous at worst. And here's the thing. I've been waking up to the reality that for much of my life, as a Western white male pastor, 
large portions of the Bible, including Genesis 5, have remained an utter mystery to me precisely because I don't have eyes to see the way that it too, like this Ukrainian mother, is a story confronting and dismantling abusive, corruptive power. The good news that we proclaim today is that God does have eyes to see all the ways that power is used against the marginalized and oppressed. He hears their cries. He fights to liberate everyone held captive by those who seek to oppress through their superstitions and ideologies. He gives His people creative ways of resisting, subverting, even scandalizing the foolish, unjust wisdom of their day. Dismantling strongholds with the wisdom of God. The invitation to us today, friends, is let's see the God who sees the disregarded. Let's ask for solidarity with the Enochs of the world, learning anew how to walk with God who walks with the lowly. All right, y'all are looking at me the same way that Mandy looked at me when I told her the idea for this sermon. It's making me uncomfortable. I'll press through it. And, uh, and, and so before you, before you think that I've completely lost my mind, which you know half of you probably already have, let's look at this text and its context, okay? Genesis 5, as we've just read, is a list of ten patriarchs. We... Uh, skipped over a few of them for brevity's sake, that link Adam to Noah, Eden to flood, right? The beginning to the new beginning. Um, and everyone on this list has an extraordinarily long lifetime, hundreds of years. Scholars have de- been debating why this is, and, and they don't know all the reasons, so I'm not going to claim to. But... Um, Nothing else is mentioned about any of these except the fact that they have kids, save for one individual. Who's the one person? No, I'm sorry, two individuals. Thank you. (laughs) Noah, who we'll get to next week, and we'll see his story in the flood. Who's the other exception? Enoch. Yeah, Enoch. Enoch is number seven on the list. Okay? Keep that number in mind. And he lives a shorter life than everybody else. A measly 365 years. I mean, come on, right? And it gives this commentary about Enoch. It says in in verse 23 and 24, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years, had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God And he was no more because God took him away. Literally it says, then Enoch was not, for God took him. What in the Methuselah is going on here? Um, My sister, when I was growing up, had one of those magic eye posters on her door. And the reason that she had it was because she was the only one that could see what the dang poster said. Everyone else could not read the magic eye poster, and she loved this. She never told me what it actually was. Like, I still don't know what was on the poster. And she would always say things like, you have to look through the image, not at the image. And I'm like, what does that even mean? You know? 
This is one of those illustrations that pastors use. Even though I still don't know how to read a Magic Eye poster, we have to say, take that same sort of approach when it comes to um, this particular genealogy. Okay, We can't just look at it or look for what, what is the Bible saying. We have to sort of look through uh, the text to the larger context in order for the image to begin to pop out. Okay, So, a word about genealogies. For us, genealogies serve, I can only come up with two functions. The first function is that we think they exist to either verify the exact age of the earth or to validate scientific accuracy of the Bible. And I'm sorry to break it to you, that's not what genealogies are for because that's not what ancient people prioritized. They just didn't care about those things. It's about something else. The only other thing I can think of that, like how we use genealogies is to like catch up on our Bible reading plan because who reads genealogies anyway, am I right? They're like free chapters. Oh good, I'm three days behind, now I'll be two days behind. Um, in other words, we, we don't get the tinglys when we think about genealogies. But for ancient people, genealogies were important. They served an important function. And this is the function. Genealogies in the ancient world were the way to talk about the continuity of power. The continuity of power. Not science. Not the age of the earth. Power. Who had it? And for how long did they have it? Because it was a way of showing the influence of your nation and its leaders over and against other nations and other leaders. And so the longer the reign of a king, the more power they held. The more power they held, the more power the nation who had that king in its lineage regarded themselves as powerful and influential in their day. Do you see it? So if your nation has a list of kings that reign for really long periods of time, it was a way of saying, we have all the power. This discussion is over. Go away. Don't mess. Um, every nation in the ancient world, I think that I can think, at least every powerful nation, had a, a genealogy. Typically, it was a list of their kings. And this included Israel's neighbors. Now, um, the one that's most relevant for today's conversation is a genealogy that's called the Sumerian King List. This is a picture of it. Uh, if you want to visit it, it's in Oxford in the UK. So next time, you know, you, you uh, cross the pond with Pete, you can, uh, you can go to Oxford and visit this. Um, it's not four individual tablets. Those are just four sides of the same object. It's an obelisk. Okay, so you can go in and have a look. It was written um, at a time that predates Israel by a few hundred years as a nation. And there are striking similarities between this Sumerian king list and Genesis 5. Um, in this Sumerian king list is a list of ten kings, same as Genesis 5, who ruled prior to a great ancient flood. Spoiler alert, Israel's not the only one with a flood story. 
talk more next week. Each king on this uh, Sumerian list has extraordinarily long life. Not just hundreds of years, but thousands of years. We're talking like 21,000 years, 47,000 years. And number seven on this list, the same position that Enoch holds, is a man named Enmendurana. Enmendurana. We'll call him uh, Eni for short. Ed. There we go. Ed. We're going to call him Ed for short because um, I can't say that a whole lot. Uh, Ed lived for 21,000 years. And something peculiar happens to Ed along the way. Ed is said to have been taken into heaven at some point in his life. And when he was taken up into heaven, he was given the deep secrets of the universe, specifically about the sun and the seasons. Hold on with me. Stick with me. We're getting to a point here. He was told the secrets about the sun and the seasons. And, and when he, somewhere along the line, this, um, this mythology around Ed comes to be such that his hometown became a center of solar worship in the Sumerian and Mesopotamian kingdoms. Now, aside from you being able to like do really well in Jeopardy, why do I share this with you? Genealogies, they tell a story. A story of power. And the Sumerian list is telling this story of power. It goes something like this. Our gods control the sun and time itself. So, if you want a good harvest this year, like if you want to put food on the table for your families, you better get with us. And um, if you want to have kids that don't die during childbirth, because the seasons control all that too, if you want to have like good fertility and not lose kids, um, then you need to get on board with our system too. See, I don't know if you heard, but we got this king who got the real deal direct from heaven. And um, since we're bigger and stronger nation, like, you know, might makes right, it just proves how right we are. So if you don't get on board, that just proves that you're cursed. And if you're cursed, then we have all the preemptive justification we need just to kind of like wipe you out if we want to. So get on board or die. This is the way ancient empires, and I, um, I might even suggest a few curtain empires. This is how they do business. This is how they exert dominance. They create narratives, ideologies, and superstitions that justify their superiority and violence as well as the scapegoating that they do over weaker people. This is the way power works. This is, a, this is a, an evidence of the collective nature of sin organizing the way that the world works. We call it a systemic injustice. And, and these empires, they say things like this. Uh, if things are getting escalated around here, it's probably your fault. The powerful regularly reverse the order of victim and perpetrator because it allows them to continue their power games. But the good news that we proclaim today is that God does not co-sign on the games and strategies of powerful empires and people. 
He sees all the ways that power is used uh, against the marginalized and the oppressed. He hears the cries of the people. He fights to liberate uh, those that are held captive by those who seek to oppress through superstitions and ideologies. And he gives his people tools, creative ways of resisting, subverting, and even scandalizing the foolish, unjust wisdom of their day by dismantling strongholds with the wisdom of God. I didn't mention this, but it's worth mentioning. M.N. Durana's name, little Eddie, you know, our boy, his name means the meeting place of heaven and earth. The meeting place of heaven and earth. It's a witness against Israel who is a weaker, by far weaker people to say to them, you serve this system of sun worship and pagan calendar numerology or else you're a goner. I mean, you don't want to starve and not be able to have kids, do you? This is empire logic. Now, what is God's response? God's response is Genesis 5. This is why it's so important to see the background. Is it popping out yet? Genesis 5 is God utilizing the language and the logic of power, of genealogy. He's inhabiting this way of speaking that holds people under these oppressive systems, and he enters into that language in order to liberate people from it. So he, what he does is he, he tells a genealogy. But instead of the genealogy that everybody expects, he tells an alternative story that upends and scandalizes the dominant narrative. And so you have Enoch. What number is Enoch in the list again? Number seven. Just like Eddie. And he lives how many years? Ooh. Just a baby, but that's not the point. What's the point? How many days are there in a solar year? 365. And ancient people, yes, would have known how many days there were in a year. Especially the people in Samaria because they um, were experts in this numerology system. And it says, verse 24, that Enoch walked with God and then he was not because God took him. Enoch... He comes along and he walks with Israel's God, which is the first time walking with God is implied since the garden. Uh, Which means that in this system, he is rejecting the narrative that Samaria is the place where heaven and earth meet. Our boy Eddie, he doesn't have the whole story. And Enoch, he lives a life in partnership with God's presence. And he passes on his inheritance to sons and daughters. You see what's going on here. My boy, he eats well and he has kids without a problem. And the result of his faithfulness, his walking with God, is not death, which is what what was thought to have happened for people who confront empire, but God takes him before death can get its claws in him. Enoch is blessed, not cursed. Can you see what's happening? Enoch's meager 365-year life in the face of a God-king 
who reigns for 21,000 years is like a mother with seeds in her pocket walking up to a soldier with an AK-47 and saying, I'm not the one who's cursed here. I'm not the one who's cursed here. Genesis 5, as cryptic as it might sound to our modern ears, is a declaration to Israel that says to them, our God is the one. Our God. The God of us weak people is the one who has authority over the sun, the moon, and the stars. They do what He says. Remember Genesis 1. Thank you very much. And the reason that they do this is because God is the one who gives them instruction. And so like, Israel, people of God, those of you who are, are, are scared of bucking the system and all it tells you how, how life should go, you can opt out of this corruptive narrative and live faithfully with your God without repercussion. It's actually going to go well for you if you do that. See, it's, it's answering an important question for Israel, which is, does God see us in the midst of our oppression by these bigger, stronger nations that are on our borders, breathing down our necks. Enoch's story says yes. He says yes. God does see. He does hear. And this, this, this yes from God, it enables Israel, maybe it enables us today, to, to start to gain an imagination for a life where we're not ruled by the suspicions and machinations of other gods. They don't hold authority over us. They don't claim our allegiance. These nationalistic, violent gods that say, get with the program or die. We don't have to listen to them. We don't have to listen to them. Enoch, he walked with God. and He was not subject to other divine authorities. Yahweh was his protector and his friend. And He will be ours too. Friends, um, this is often, often what is happening under the hood, behind the image. You know, if I use the, um, the magic eye posters again. Um, this is what's happening in the background that we oftentimes can't see in, in so many of the biblical stories that we believe that we're familiar with. Stories like Joseph and his brothers. Moses and Pharaoh. David and Goliath. Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe people have asked you this question like, how do you know that the Bible's true? You ever get that question? I've had a boatload of different uh, answers to that question over time, like at different points in my um, journey with Jesus. One of the ones that's most uh, striking and relevant to me though recently is that the, the Bible is a minority report of the disenfranchised. Now, like, why is that important? It's because to the victor go the spoils of telling the story. This is the way history works. 
if you win, you get to tell the narrative, right? This is how it goes. Like, you get to write the books and, and do the documentaries, you know? But that's not what we see in the Bible. So often, the people of God aren't the ones with the power. And they aren't, they aren't often the ones who gain the victory. I mean, Israel's story ends with them being thrown into captivity, taken off as, as hostages. And yet, they, like their story is the one that we recognize as being the true story of all time and all people. Like, if that doesn't smack of God's activity, I don't know what does. <laughs> you know? Because not only is the Bible um, written by the minority, the, the disenfranchised, but it's written to the minority of the disenfranchised in order to give them a new narrative because they're used to hearing the narratives of power. The Samaritan King's List being just one of hundreds, if not thousands. It's, it, is a, it is a cross-sectional cut against the grain of history. One of the reasons why I have um, confidence in the Bible. And that this, this culminates, though, in the life of Jesus, who though being God in very nature did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or used to His own advantage, but He becomes nothing. Ephesians 2 tells us taking the nature of a servant, submitting Himself even to death on a cross. The one with all the power becomes the one with no power to meet with and lift up those with no power. I mean, Jesus frames His entire ministry this way. In, in Luke 4, Jesus is announcing what He's all about. Right? Like if... If you were gonna, um, this is like Jesus' job interview for God's mission on earth. This is the way he frames it. The scroll of Isaiah is given to him, and he reads this The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the, the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, I, I've come to write a new story for the real poor. <laughs> People who are really oppressed. Who are actually blind. Who are actually sick. Who have actually been under the thumb of empire their entire lives. See, um, we oftentimes, we spiritualize, we abstract, and we disembody these stories and these messages because I'll just speak for myself. I can't speak for anybody else. I've never been on the wrong side of earthly power. So that can't be about what they're about. Like, I have to come up with some other meaning. Because I, I have a difficult time putting myself in the shoes of those that, he, that Jesus was originally speaking to. Their experience is not my experience. And that's okay. It's just a fact. It's a fact that I have to own and, and reckon with. Just like last week we talked about that. But we have to, we have to um, try, maybe, to like rediscover 
that each one of these stories, stories like David and Goliath, Moses and Pharaoh, teachings like Jesus, each one of them is a clear direct declaration to those with nothing but seeds in their pocket. That, there is good news. That God does see all the ways that the power in this world is used against you to marginalize and oppress. And that God hears your cries. And He fights to liberate everyone, including you, held captive by those who seek to oppress through superstitions and ideologies. Things like solar worship and fertility calendars. He comes to give His people creative ways of resisting this influence by subverting and even scandalizing the foolish wisdom of their days. Dismantling strongholds with the wisdom of God. How do we respond? <laughs> I've been asking myself that question all week. How do we respond to a message like this? The reason I feel a tension is because I feel a certain tension um, that I'm, I'm just going to name because I don't know what else to do with it. Okay? I've said this already, but I'll put it a different way. The ideologies are like controlling narratives that influence the predominant way that people think and believe. It, it shapes what we see and what we don't see. And one of the ideologies that influences us as Americans, well, there's two of them. I just discovered a new one this morning. Is pragmatism, tell me what to do, and uh, individualism, this is about me. Right? Pragmatism and individual shape almost everything that we do. I want to know what to do and what not to do, clearly. Like, I want to have certainty about these things. And um, I want to know, like, I. I I tend to see the world through individual rights, responsibilities, and responses rather than collectively or, or communally. And so one artifact of this ideology, this uh, individualism, is that I, am, uh, I feel a keen pressure as a pastor that um, a sermon is only good if it tells people individual good news and individual ways to respond. And I fear that I don't have either of those today. And that's, that's the tension I feel. Is that the sermon that we've just proclaimed, the good news that I've just declared, is um, it fits the people of Ukraine as well as the disempowered in Russia, for that matter, more than maybe it does uh, suburban America. And the temptation that I feel as a pastor because of this tension is to fill that tension with a resolution. <laughs> In other words, I don't, I don't want to disappoint you all. I, like I feel like it's part of my job not to disappoint you. I feel that in my bones. Um, that's why I'm naming this because I don't know what else to do with it. <laughs> and I could be wrong. But uh, feeling the, the tension the way that I do, I don't think just coming up with a resolution is actually what God wants to do today. So what, what does God want to do? This is the clearest way that I can put it. 
that I think it might actually be good for us to realize that not every story in the Bible is about us. That might actually be good for us to come to that revelation. One of A very reasonable question that I have not answered this morning that's probably ringing in your ears is um, if this Sumerian king's list is so important to understanding Genesis 5, why in the world doesn't the Bible just come out and say it? Right? Totally reasonable question. Why doesn't it just refer to it by name? If like this is what's going on in the background. And the answer is also pretty reasonable. The Bible assumes that you know. <laughs> the Bible assumes, at least Genesis does, and here in chapter 5, that you are an ancient Israelite. Because everybody and their uncle has heard of the Sumerian king list. In that day, at least. But not in ours. In other, so the Bible is for us, like... It's been handed down for our benefit. But friends, it's not about us. And there are often times when we're going to come to stories that are just not about us. And that's okay. Um, This is happening actually in Luke 4. When Jesus gives this message of um, blessing to the poor, Freedom for the prisoners? Jesus' audience assumes that Jesus is talking about them. (laughs) They get really excited really quickly because they're like, fantastic! We've been oppressed. Like, this is good news. And then Jesus goes, actually, it's about the non Jewish poor. He pulls a total bait and switch on him. And he says, no, it's actually about the Gentile poor and how God rescues them and uses Israel to do it. This isn't a message about your prosperity, Jewish folks, in the synagogue today. It's a message about their uh, restoration and God using us to do it. And what's their response? These good, religious, synagogue attendees they, th- they want to throw them off a cliff. They assumed the Bible was all about them. And it's not. And neither is it all about us. So I think, uh, let's take a different approach today. I, there aren't many cliffs around here, so you can't throw me off anything too high. Um, <laughs> but I think part of growing as a follower of Jesus is to realize that the faithful thing to do is actually to deny ourselves and to resolve that we will pray for, listen to, and stand in solidarity with those who are those who are on the wrong end of power. Because they're all over. They're not just in Ukraine and in Russia, although they are. They're here too. They live in your neighborhood. They go to work with you. They go to the store with you. And I think if this good news implicates us in any way, it is to say that we are called 
to love them as we love ourselves. And to put the last first and trust that God will take care of us along the way. Let's pray.